Hi, I'm Charlotte Marchant, digital intern based at Bodmin Keep Army Museum. And I'm Joseph Quinn, digital intern at Helston's Museum of Cornish Life. Over the past four months, myself and Charlotte have been sharing many stories with you on BBC Radio Cornwall, wartime tales, which we have uncovered during the course of our research. These stories reveal the diverse and often complex aspects of life in Cornwall during the Second World War and how these connect to what's happening in people's lives today. Just as we did for our last BBC upload, we're going to share with you some of the stories we have gathered. Stories of people, soldiers and civilians, locals and foreigners, enemies and friends. The stories of Cornwall during the Second World War. So what are we going to talk about this month, Joe? We're on our fifth episode already. Are we starting to run out of stories yet? No, we have plenty of stories to tell, Charlotte. Just frankly, not enough time to tell them all, to be honest. <laughs> well, we'll have to do our best. We're not going to be digital interns forever. So yeah. what are we doing this episode on, Joe? Well, here's an interesting one for you. Prisoners of war, POWs. Enemy or friendly? Both, I suppose. We touched upon it the last time when we were talking about Lieutenant Adolf Glear and his crew members. Remember on the last on the crash-landed Heinkel becoming prisoners of war? Yeah. And it got us both thinking about POWs, enemy POWs, who were interned in prisoner of war camps in Cornwall, and people from Cornwall who were serving in the armed forces abroad who were taken prisoner by the enemy, the Japanese, the Italians, and the Germans. Well, let's start with enemy prisoners of war here in Cornwall. Just how many POWs were there in the county during the war? Yeah, this is a really difficult question to answer. Now, remarkably, it seems that the tallies of enemy POWs who were either incarcerated in military camps or billeted in special camp facilities next to uh, working locations such as a quarry, a mine, a farm or any other location throughout the UK were not actually maintained. At least they don't seem to have been maintained. And if they were, it's proving damn difficult to find them. Where have you been looking? Mainly in the National Archives queue in London. The National Archives hold the administrative records for the whole of Britain, both civil and military, in peace and war for over a thousand years. If there is anywhere where these statistics are located, it's there. Although I'm still looking because there are a lot of records there and access is limited due to the ongoing pandemic, although it's starting to open up. Uh, there are some general facts I can share with you based on my research so far. Um, there were just over 1.5 million enemy prisoners of war maintained in Britain by the end of the war in 1945. These prisoners were either Italian or German, although I have not encountered much information as to which nationality encountered for the highest proportion. But it's safe to say that the majority were Italian. 90% of the Italian POWs returned in Britain were put to work in agriculture, industry, and other areas important to the national war effort, compared to just 25% of German POWs who were similarly employed. So we employed almost all the Italian prisoners in the country, but only a quarter of the Germans. Did we not trust the Germans at all? Well, uh, yeah, I think there was a deep suspicion, a feeling, I suppose, that the Germans were likely to be far more volatile and less trustworthy than the Italians. Italian POWs were considered to be less ideologically driven than their German comrades and were trusted by the authorities and the population to do the war work assigned to them. 
The government and I suppose British society suspected that the German POW population were likely to be made up of large numbers of fanatical Nazis who would be bent on causing as much damage to the British war effort as possible through sabotage and subversion. That's quite interesting. Um, but how many prisoner of war camps were there in Cornwall? And what kind of war work did the prisoners of war in Cornwall actually do? Well, officially, uh, there are four main camps recorded in the Cornwall area. Uh, White Cross Camp at St. Colin Major, Consons Mine Camp, which was located in the vicinity of Tyredreath and Parr, Penny Gillam Farm Camp and Scarn Cross Camp, both of which were in Launceston. In reality, we have identified at least four more POW camps and work sites in Penzance, Roseland, St. Earth, and even one near Helston. Indeed, there may have been many more such camps or subcamps, but unfortunately, finding any official records of their existence has proven quite challenging. It's actually really surprising. Um, what we know of the existence of these facilities is uh, mainly given to us through oral and written testimonies, as well as photographs. The primary functions of the camps was, of course, to confine the enemy prisoners in one central location where they could be monitored by the authorities. They were fed and sheltered quite well, and they were often provided with new tailored uniforms to replace their old and dirty battlefield uniforms. These uniforms had their insignia and the rank of the Italian and German armed forces sewn onto them. They were also able to avail of luxuries such as cigarettes and alcohol on occasion, and they received Red Cross parcels from their families filled with goods from home. However, there was considerable need for labor. The Geneva Convention permitted all belliger belligerents in the conflict to use captured enemy prisoners of war, except for officers, for manual labor. In Cornwall, German and Italian POWs worked in the mines, the quarries, and on the farms. The POWs also made up work parties for local engineering projects of a non-military nature, and in some camps, craft workshops were set up. For example, German soldiers in a POW camp in southwest Cornwall made toys for free distribution at Christmas time to orphan children of servicemen killed in action, as well as children whose fathers had become disabled by combat. Sounds like the German prisoners actually provided an important service to the British public. Well, very much so. Um, but a lot of German POWs who came to this country were eventually moved on to Canada and the United States. There were a huge number of German POWs captured by the Allied forces towards the end of the war, millions of them, especially in 1944 and 1945 as the Allies conquered Northwest Europe. And the decision to move them to North America was more to do with capacity rather than anything else. But yes, it appears that the Germans weren't as bad as people suspected. In fact, many of them, just like the Italian POWs who charmed and serenaded the ladies, also proved themselves to be honourable, reliable, and if I may also add, loyal to the country. Many developed a love of the places where they were interned and actually decided to stay in Britain after the war. Well, we'll come to this in a moment. But you're telling me first that these prisoners of war came into contact or even socialised with British women. Yes, they did. And in Cornwall, there are two specific examples of this. A land girl from Leeds named Mildred Bowman, known as Mickey, worked for a time at the Women's Land Army Camps of Penzance and at a requisition country house called Place House on the Roseland. She stated that when she was based with the Land Army at Place House, 
there were a few hundred German POWs billeted there, housed in Nissen huts at the front of the property. And what happened was, believe it or not, the land girls and the POWs actually worked together on the land, especially at harvest time. Mickey was a driver for the land army, and um, her main responsibility often involved driving lorries loaded with groups of land girls as well as POWs to their locations of work, which changed regularly depending upon which farms required their service. And Mickey remembered that when she was based at Carnegie Drive in Penzance, there were Italian prisoners working there, and she was put in charge of a group of them and was responsible for taking them to work and also for dispensing their food rations. She immediately noted that the rations that she was giving the Italians uh, were basically insufficient. And as she recalled, I looked at it and I thought, I can't feed these fellows on this for lunchtime. So I used to get extra food from my hostel where we were just allowed to help ourselves. And I used to get several tins of sandwich material and cake and all sorts of stuff to feed the prisoners. Wow, she must have been really popular with those Italian prisoners of war. <laughs> Indeed she was. Uh, as she said herself, I got, got on quite well with the Italian prisoners. And when I left to go to Place House, they made a little cigarette case for me with an engraving. And the engraving said, live and let live. And then Mickey thought to herself, I hope someone is doing something like this for our lads in Germany or Italy or wherever they are. That's a really nice segue to my own story, actually, Joe. But um, what's the second example of POWs socialising with local British women? Is there some scandalous love affair here somewhere? No, not so much a scandalous love story, but actually a very heartwarming one. One of the most well-known enemy POWs in turn in Cornwall was Rudy Mock. Rudy was a German soldier who was captured by British forces and brought over to England to be interned, apparently unwillingly. He was interned in a POW camp at St. Earth and was put to work on farms. And this is how he got his first experience of daffodil farming. Rudy clearly became so enraptured with Southwest Cornwall that he volunteered to stay after the war in 1948 when he was paroled. Rudy made his home in Crowan, Praise, not very far from where he'd been held as a POW, buying himself an old railway station building, which he converted into a bungalow. In 1951, he married a local woman who had been a land girl during the war, and together they set up a daffodil farm, which was highly successful and ultimately made him a millionaire. <laughs> Some people have all the luck. Yeah, he certainly landed on his feet when he landed in Cornwall. But, you know, Rudy Mock's story isn't even the best story. There was another German POW, also an internee at the camp at St. Earth, who also settled in the area after the war and remained there for the rest of his life. And the locals called him John the German. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but now I guess it's my turn. So what have you got for this, this month? Well, following on from your discussion on the topic of prisoners of war in Cornwall, I thought it would be a good opportunity to provide another perspective and to speak about the experiences of British POWs held overseas. So for this episode, I am very honoured to be sharing one particular individual POW story, that of Gerald Cecil Williams. Although Gerald sadly passed in 2005, I've been fortunate to draw information for today's episode from Gerald's first-hand written accounts that he actually started writing in late 1944 and when he was back at home in England during 1945. These memoirs are now assembled into a limited edition published book. 
Amazing. So good to hear another perspective. Uh, tell me about Gerald. So Gerald was the younger of two brothers. He was born in Cornwall in 1916 and actually went on to study at Eton in 1929. Oh, what was his role during the Second World War? Well, when the war broke out, Gerald joined the fourth county of London Yeomanry and had a distinguished war record. He was sent to North Africa in 1941 as a senior ranking officer where he was captured and subsequently sent to Italy as a prisoner in a submarine as it happens. Mm. In 1944, he was sent to a camp in Czechoslovakia and finally to Germany where he only narrowly avoided being bombed by the US Air Force. Something I find quite interesting and that I'd never actually heard reference before in his memoirs, Gerald describes his time as a POW as time in the bag. Yes, uh, this is actually a general wartime term for being captured by the enemy and placed in confinement within uh, a POW facility, which could be as basic, basic as a stockade with a whole lot of wire around it. In the bag basically means the enemy took you prisoner. So Gerald was captured in North Africa in 1941. How was he captured and where was he first taken by the enemy? Well, I assume for security reasons, Gerald didn't really go into much detail about the actual capture. All that he recorded in his memoirs is that he and the men whom he was with at the time ran straight into an enemy column and were put in the bag, taken away on a German carrier. During the two days Gerald and the British guys spent with the German captors, he noted that he had nothing to complain about regarding his treatment. After these initial two days, things slightly changed when he was handed over to the Italians who put them in a lorry along with other British prisoner of war officers and off they drove to Bardia in eastern Libya. They were kept here at a compound apparently comprising of four stone walls with barbed wire and broken glass on top for a short while before being loaded onto a submarine and taken to his, his first prisoner of war camp in Bari, Italy. Yeah, actually, I, I'd say probably one of the reasons why I didn't talk too much about his capture was because in North Africa, it was very common for people bumping into the enemy by total accident. It actually was quite embarrassing. Um, but I was just wondering, does he speak of his experiences at this camp where he was confined? Yes, very much so. Um, Gerald wrote about how that winter happened to be the coldest Barry had had for 64 years and how no heating was provided. Sometimes it was so cold that people feared going outside in case they caught pneumonia. Lice were abundant, also fleas, while several people also suffered from scabies. But arguably worse for Gerald than this overcrowding and general discomfort was the hunger he experienced. Apparently him and his fellow inmates thought, talked and dreamt about nothing other than food. Yeah, um, that sounds actually pretty torturous, to be honest, if, you, if you're deprived of um, proper food rations. Uh, but seriously, that sounds very unpleasant. I wonder uh, what kind of rations they were being fed at the time. Well, funnily enough, Gerald does describe his daily menu at this camp in Barry. In addition to his daily bread ration of six ounces, at 8am he would have a small glass of coffee, but not too hot, otherwise it would crack the glass. At 11.30am he would have a very watery soup, thickened with cabbage or cauliflower and a few bits of macaroni. 
This was followed by a small bit of fish and a spoonful of cabbage. At 4.30pm, Gerald would eat the exact same meal as he did for his lunch. Saturdays would be the only exception where the prisoners were supposed to have meat stew, either goat or horse. I'm not sure how oh. the sound of that. No, me neither. How long was Gerald held at this camp in Barry Charlotte? God almighty, but such terrible food. It must have been an awful experience. Well, they were all repeatedly told that Barry was only a transit camp and that they would be moved fairly quickly to a more permanent camp. That never happened, and Gerald was there for three and a half months before being moved to a camp in Padula in early 1942. Gerald went on to travel through several more camps after this, in Italy, but also in Czechoslovakia and Germany in the latter years of the war. I certainly didn't realise how much the prisoners of war moved around overseas. Did you, Joseph? No, it is rather amazing how much POWs do get moved around uh, on both sides, both the enemy POWs in British custody and uh, our own uh, prisoners of war, allied prisoners of war in the hands of the Axis uh, powers. In fact, for both enemy POWs plus our own boys who were captured abroad, it does seem that they were frequently moved around um, by truck, by ship, by train, and in some tragic cases by foot. In this particular case, it was because Italy collapsed in 1943 um, and actually uh, Italy partially surrendered to the Allies and uh, changed sides. So what happened was these POWs ended up changing custody from Italian hands over to German hands. That's why they were moved around. But it really does make me wonder how such experiences compared to each other, as in whether he preferred Italy or Germany or vice versa. Yeah, um, me too, but I'm not too sure, really. Um, although Gerald does specifically note that his preferred camp was in Padula, um, Italy, where he went after his time at Barry. Although I suppose that's not really too surprising when you consider the threat and imminent danger to his life they experienced at his last camp at Brunswick in Germany. Really? Uh, what, what happened here? Well, this particular camp, O-Flag 79, had originally been a Luftwaffe training school with an aerodrome, a railway and an aircraft factory all within a half mile radius of the camp. In other words, Gerald and his fellow prisoners were surrounded by perfectly legitimate targets for bombing. In oh. fact, two buildings already had enormous bomb craters in them. Right, okay, so they were literally in the sights of the American Air Force. So did Gerald ever experience any of these raids when he was a POW at the Offlag? Yes, in fact, several. But there was one US Air Force raid in particular on August the 24th, 1944, that in his own words, Gerald wrote he would remember for a very long time. A £1,000 bomb landed around 10 feet from the end of the building from where he was. Whoa. where the other British ranks lived. The blast had removed all of the windows and doors in that part of the building and also all of the tiles from the roof. Gerald writes that everybody was in a very bad mental state after and nobody ever fully recovered, at least not until they were liberated. Just imagine how helpless these men must have felt, Joseph, mm -hmm. being bombed inside a wire enclosure and the sense of claustrophobia they must have experienced. It's pretty awful. Yeah, unimaginable. Must have been terrifying to go on living under that constant threat too. I mean, uh, how, how long did they have to wait until their liberation? Well, the camp was liberated by the US Ninth Army on the 12th of April 1945. 
So Gerald later returned back to England after liberation. What a remarkable story. And you're so right. Um, it's, it's interesting to gain another perspective on the POW theme. Yeah. Um, and what I find particularly interesting is that Gerald wrote in 2000 when he was compiling these memoirs into a book that with the wisdom of tolerance and hindsight, he thinks he may have recorded his experiences rather differently now. But nevertheless, his express views were a fair description of the views he and his fellow prisoners held at that time. It was intended to be a fair description, warts and all. He writes that if he were to omit such warts, then the narrative risks degenerating into a bedtime story. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is very interesting how time and hindsight can alter the, our view on things. Although one of the things you could also say is that it's better for him to write about it when it's fresher in his mind. But, you know, I suppose my final thought is that enemy POWs in Britain had such a better time of it uh, than our own boys did abroad by everything you've just described. Yeah, um, it would definitely seem that way. And I kind of very much agree with that sentiment, looking at other accounts of um, British POWs abroad overseas as well. Yeah, I don't envy them. I don't envy them. I suppose that's as good a note as any upon which to end, Charlotte. Yeah, well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, Joseph. I know I have. And to our listeners, thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the two stories we've shared with you today. Yes, um, and please tune in to us uh, for the next episode next time. Uh, Bye for now. Goodbye. Thank you.